It's been a long time since I've done this. Playing really? politics. Oh, yeah. Scott Gillespie and John Rashier. We had days where we had twins games. Then I missed uh, a day when Adam Carter was a part of it. But yeah, John and Scott here playing politics. Uh, for the folks listening live on air, we'll do this over uh, two parts. Uh, you can always check this out, uh, startribune.com, wccradio.com. John, I'll start with you. John Bolton, um, it's been a good run. John Bolton is out as the NSA head. Uh, I'm inclined to believe John Bolton that he quit. The president never likes anybody quitting on him, so he likes to say he fired. Really, it doesn't matter. Bolton is gone. When you look back at the Bolton tenure, what does it say about him? And what does it say now about the person who really is the NSA advisor, Donald Trump himself? It's part of the made-for-TV presidency in that he was considered for a job early on, and reportedly President Trump literally didn't like his looks, the way that he portrayed himself, the signature mustache that may have kept him from a bigger job in the administration. But he began to watch him more regularly on Fox News, as he is wont to do. And so when he went through his second national security advisor, he decided to hire him. And, of course, he came in with hawkish credentials, never let them go, and didn't seem to get in line when he lost those intra-administration policy scrums, as he often did, to a much more agile Mike Pompeo, the Secretary of State. And so the fact that it ended up acrimoniously shouldn't be a surprise, nor should the difference in terms of how it ended. You're right in the end. That's not what matters. And it doesn't even necessarily matter beyond the symbolism that he's gone in terms of policy because the president didn't necessarily follow his advisor that much with the exception of the Iran nuclear deal, yep. which will be one of the really key decisions he's made during his three years in office. So I think it'll be compelling to see who he names after this. But more than ever, it seems that, as the president has said himself, he is his best foreign policy advisor. He's yep. going more on his own gut, and he's moved far away from what he used to call the, his generals to much more his own counsel. Yeah, Scott, that's part of what he said. He goes, you know, I listen to myself. You know, when right. people are saying when, when that was on, because let's branch it out to this too, Scott, this is all related to the Camp David decision also where uh, lengthy negotiations – and then the president himself jumped in and said, let's bring the leaders of the Taliban, let's bring the, the, the president of Afghanistan to Camp David, and let's try to finish off these negotiations here. Um, my point earlier, and I want to hear what you have to say, is I understand that you have to negotiate with the Taliban. It's, they are a part of it. For me, I'm a line in the sand, no, not on American soil. It sounds like Bolton and others felt that way. So that was another area where Trump's saying, you're not agreeing with me. So why am I keeping you in this particular position? That's right. And I think in in the past, you would have seen an administration uh, requiring that there be an actual deal uh, in place before they would do the the symbolic meeting at at Camp David to to sign that deal, announce it. They didn't have that. And uh, in fact, it seems like from what we've been reading, the Taliban actually was Saying they weren't going to come unless there was that sort of deal. Exactly. So very Think odd, about that. Yeah. Very strange uh, who was driving the bus on that. And certainly Bolton had uh, friction with Trump over that whole uh, negotiation, but also over North Korea and Iran. So it might have just been a matter of time here uh, yeah. before these two were going to divorce. 
I haven't spent a ton of time on Sharpiegate, John, but I think it's worth mentioning again. You know, this is this is from now weeks ago. The president at the time mentioning Alabama when the the scientists and the meteorologists in Birmingham were trying to assure the citizens of Alabama, no, it's not this. And then the president, who always feels like, don't ever apologize, don't ever admit a mistake. It's a sign of weakness. This is who he's been for thirty years. To the point where he kept tweeting about it. Well, then all of us in the press, of course, we kept talking about it. So it was a back and forth. But then when we get these reports that Wilbur Ross was literally threatening people with job security when scientists and meteorologists are putting out information, which is to inform American citizens if they are in peril we can't lose that in the absurdity of it because it's absurd when you see the president do a Sharpie up there. But when literally you're having the Secretary of Commerce telling people, hey, if you keep doing your job accurately, you're going to be fired because of it. It's not hyperbole to say that what the National Weather Service does at times, including here where we just had a tornado touchdown in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, yeah. is life and death. And so when you have tampering from above and, of course, reporting from both the New York Times and Washington Post – just this afternoon, right before this recording, in terms of it was the president himself who focused on this, pushed Mick Mulvaney, his acting chief of staff, to then push Wilbur Ross yeah. to try to get them to disavow what clearly had happened. This is a really serious situation, which, as you say, supersedes the absurdity of the whole Sharpie gate, the fact that he so crudely drew this line on the National Weather Service map at this point. Yeah. And it shouldn't be forgotten that it's not just lives but livelihoods that yeah. the Commerce Secretary impacts with economic data. So if they can be dishonest in terms of pressuring people at the National Weather Service, what about the multiple economic reports that come out regarding employment or other real crucial data that matters to how businesses operate and how people make employment decisions? So this is really a serious situation in many ways, and I think speaks to an extraordinary lack of discipline from the administration and people on Capitol Hill who should keep the president and the executive branch accountable. Well, Scott, can I branch out to, to a very serious topic tied to this? Here we are 18 years after September 11th, as we're recording this, right? And George W. Bush had won a very controversial election about a year or so before, right? When that day evolved and when he finally gave a speech later in the day or when he had the bull, bullhorn you know, a couple days later in New York City or he spoke to Congress, George W. Bush in the country at that time had approval rating about 90 percent. Mm-hmm. If something happens in our country right now where we get into a conflict or we're attacked, there is so much division right now. There is so much doubting of – Independents and Democrats, the president, there are so many Republicans who, if they're supporters of the president, believe that others don't believe in America. Mm -hmm. I just I don't know how much we would rally around our country. I know we would. I just don't know how long it would last and if it would be close at all towards George Bush, who Democrats at the time kept saying he's not our president. Uh, But it was still for at least a period of time before that started to unravel where the whole country rallied behind him. We did. We rallied behind to a point that we believed information that later proved to be false about. Yeah. Uh, but initially, what led to that? But absolutely, right. absolutely, we did. And I think your point's a good one, Chad. I think that there is so much division now. You do have to question 
how much uh, Americans could pull together in that kind of situation. I would also add, I think, uh, George W. Bush, uh, uh, President Obama, they, they, were, they had different skills in terms of uniting people. Uh, we just haven't seen that be something that President Trump is interested in. Uh, so I wonder how he would handle uh, that kind of uh, crisis, which he frankly has not had, thankfully, uh, I so think far you know in his presidency. He, don't, he just would be himself. Probably. Right? I mean, John, do you really think he would be any different? No, not necessarily. And just to amplify both of your points regarding a crisis, which we all hope doesn't befall yes, this country absolutely. here, we're also in an environment of AI and deep fakes and the ability to alter video right. and audio. It's harder. That could truly spark an international incident, if not a war itself. And so the veracity of the administration, the president himself, is probably more important than it ever has been. So when they decide to bend it for something like a weather map, it's really unfortunate in terms of building up that equity that's necessary, not just with the American people, but with allies and even with adversaries that the U.S. president is telling the truth. Let's pause, take a break, come back more with Plain Politics. John and Scott with you here from the Star Tribune. It's 144. That is the Lindis Construction Time Check. Time to replace your roof, the 50-year GAF asphalt shingles. I'm going to talk golf here for a little bit, and I'm going to talk Giants Ridge because I know we're here September 11th, and we were talking uh, earlier how so far the month weather-wise hasn't been great. But we still have. Six more weeks where golf is in the mix. And by the way, this may be the best time of all to take the trip to Bawabak, head of the iconic Iron Range, and go to Giants Ridge. All sorts of different locations, different types of locations on site at Giants Ridge where you can stay, right? You can go up there, you and your significant other, you can bring your family, a buddy's trip, get married up there, you name that, and the customer service is outstanding. If golf is not a part of it, Hiking, walking, all the great restaurants, all the great locations on the range are a part of it. For me, when I go up there, two golf courses are on the top of the list. The Legend and the Quarry, I absolutely love. The Quarry, to me, is one of the finest golf courses in the state of Minnesota. Don't believe me. Look at the rankings. Some have it as the best course in Minnesota. Check it out today, GiantsRidge.com. So let's uh, switch over and talk about the uh, Democrats. We will have a debate. The 10 who qualified will all be on one stage. We still have others, uh, John and Scott, who are still running, but they did not uh, qualify. Uh, Scott, why don't you go first? What part of this debate, which is Thursday night in Texas, will you are you most looking forward to hearing, whether it's questioning to one candidate, the back and forth? What, what part are you anticipating most? I want to see the Biden-Warren dynamic. They haven't been on the stage together until now. Uh, Really interested in seeing uh, that now in particular because Warren seems to be gaining momentum. Yep. And so that's that's at the top of my list. Also the first time for Warren and Harris, the two top women uh, polling in the in the race right now to be on the stage at the same time. That's an interesting one to watch as well. Still, you got 10. So it'll be diluted to some extent. But uh, but it'll be better. Yep. John, what do you think? On policy, I think that they'll be pressed to see if there's any bit of room on the Medicare for all plans, which are not polling well, whereas when you ask the American people if they're for Medicare for all who want it or the public buy-in option, that polls extremely well. And so 
I'm wondering if there's going to be any wiggle room among Senator Warren or some Senator Sanders or some of the leading advocates of that. On politics, I concur with Scott in terms of what who many perceive to be the two leading candidates in Vice President Biden and Senator Warren, but in particular the vice president who leads in all national polls. If he has a strong debate performance, he may be able to pierce this perception that he is slipping both in terms of his ability to lead a forceful campaign as well as in the polls. Conversely, if he doesn't come across well, as he certainly didn't in the very first debate, it may accelerate that debate and it may tighten the race as well. John, let's talk about Senator Klobuchar. Uh, She qualified, not by a lot, but she qualified. She's on one of the edges. You know, she does pretty distinctively disagree with Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders on issues. And she'll make that point, but she won't mention their names. And now she's going to be on stage with them. She hasn't had one moment this entire election season. I get it still early where it's been that two days where people are talking about her. Isn't this it? I mean, at some point she I know she's saying she's going to be slow and steady. She's going to visit every county in Iowa. I just think this is a different election. And and this is another opportunity for her to stand out. And she misses it. Her opportunity diminishes once again. Well, you're right. She's on the edge of the debate stage, but she's in the center in terms of the Senate and in terms of her Minnesota moderate policies. And she has yet to have a moment where she can profoundly and proudly pronounce those, tell the American people what those are about and why those are not only the right policies that a president should have, but a winning formula. And she just hasn't had that ability based partly on how the questions have come to her and that she's specifically responded to many of them. And she may end up doing what many candidates do, which is to field a question, give it a quick nod, and then go into what she really wants to talk about. But I think you're quite right, Chad. She's Mm going to really have to, at this debate, stand out, or she may not be standing up there in the next one. Scott, let's talk about Minnesota issues here. Uh, you guys wrote about the insulin bill today. This this is an issue which resonates with a lot of people uh, in this state and across the country. And outgoing uh, Senator uh, Scott Jensen was on with me a couple months ago on the day when I think you guys had it first that a deal had been reached. But I remember I was talking to the senator saying, well, if you haven't agreed on the money, do you really have a deal? He's like, no. We don't have a deal. And has anything really changed? No, it doesn't seem like it has. Uh, Senator Jensen, Senator Abler on the Republican side have both been uh, proponents of making a deal, coming up with some uh, funding to help with uh, these high insulin prices. But it does not seem like they've been able to convince uh, uh, Senate Majority Leader Gazelka or Michelle Benson, the other Republican that really is key to this whole thing, to to, uh, agree to it. I don't quite understand why when you look at the fact that we're not talking about a lot of money here. We're talking about 10 million bucks a year, something like that. To, I mean, the to, last in budget was what 50 billion? Yeah, right? it's 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 I don't understand it. I think it's bad politics if you don't make make a deal on this. I don't know how much they're trying to get other issues on the table for a special session. Yep. And whether Walls is just saying, you know, no, it's insulin and that's it. I I, I don't know, but uh, amazing to me that they haven't been able to make a deal on this. You know, I think it's quite compelling that the owner of our newspaper, Mr. Taylor, Glenn Taylor, who many know also owns the Timberwolves, on just the very few occasions that he's chosen to write for our pages, chose this as one of the issues that he wanted mm-hmm. to focus on. Yeah. And in effect said, let's get a deal done. This is something that's too profound for the people of Minnesota. And you know, I think that represents 
in many ways the bipartisan feeling amongst the state that people should not be dying because of this insulin issue, and yet it still hasn't been able to get a recalcitrant uh, caucus to be able to come together. If they don't solve this soon, watch for this to be a really early focus in the legislature next year. Okay, let's finish with what continues to take place in Minneapolis and St. Paul and heighten this week by St. Paul with three fatalities. Yesterday, Melvin Carter, the mayor, and Todd Axtell, the police chief came out and talked about a different approach. Scott, they talked about more police officers. Uh, the police chief saying he's never seen anything like this. What responsibilities on the two mayors right now? These are two young mayors, new to the office, but both are facing a pretty significant crisis. Fry, not just downtown Minneapolis, but heightened downtown Minneapolis. Now Carter, when he is reducing the police force, it's a pretty big test for both of these individuals. It absolutely is, and police issues have derailed Previous mayors, arguably, uh, you could say that's what derailed Betsy Hodges' re-election attempt. Yeah. That and other things. So major uh, issue for both of them right now. And they have different council makeup, and they also have different strengths in the two systems in the two cities. That makes it interesting. Carter has, uh, you know, a little bit more authority. He seems to have a council that might be more inclined to actually add police resources, whereas Fry may not have the votes to add even 14 officers in Minneapolis. Well, Fry with me at the fair contended that he would rather do more. He would rather add more police officers, but this is all he can get. Oh, that's, I believe that's true. My my contention to him was why not just say the number and try to negotiate, right? Yeah. You know? Well, he, he did give a number of 14 in his budget. A little bit uh, lower than the police chief wants. Oh, <laughs> when he wants four hundred over seven right. years, right? And 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 you saw we had an editorial Monday where we were breaking uh, survey results from the Chamber yes. of Commerce and the Downtown Council, which showed overwhelming support among residents of Minneapolis to expand the police force by as many as one hundred and fifty officers by twenty uh, twenty five. The other question asked, how about 250 by 2025? Both of those polled extremely strongly, yep. uh, uh, 63% for 250 and 68% for 150. So, um, excuse me, for 125. But, yeah, it, there's a disconnect there, and you've got just really loud voices uh, in in both city halls, but especially in Minneapolis yeah, I agree. that don't want to see another buck go to the cops right now. You know, the survey Scott referenced, he's quite right in in terms of the strong support for those differing numbers of police officers who may be added. And those were with the residents of Minneapolis. And I think that it's really important to remember that there are many more residents surrounding the cities of Minneapolis and St. Paul, who the two central cities depend on in terms of businesses locating here, people coming in for entertainment or for sports, or even perhaps most importantly, the entire state supporting the University of Minnesota, which has had its own set of challenges in terms of crime that has happened both on campus and in surrounding areas around campus. And so I think that there's a broader constituency that should be really important to the city council that they have to think about as well. And I think that that might be one way that the mayor can push for his really small number of 14, but in the next few different years, try to increase that a little bit closer to what the police chief wants. Gentlemen, enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Scott Gillespie and John Rash from the Star Tribune. That is plain politics, WCCRadio.com and Star Tribune. 
Suck830.com. A reminder, tomorrow you can eat out to end hunger during uh, New Suck830, WCCO, and Second Harvest Heartland's Plates for Good. It's a celebration dining out for cause. Our uh, premier eateries in the area will donate a minimum of 20% of sales to end hunger. Enjoy whether it's breakfast, lunch, cocktail, stay for dinner, and don't forget dessert. For participating residents, visit platesforgood.org. Plates for Good is sponsored by Minnesota Monthly and Cisco. That is tomorrow. Uh, uh, Mr. Cook, while we were having that conversation with yeah. John and Scott, yeah. I've noticed there are lights flashing. Yes. Okay, I, I just want to remind you about seven years ago there mm-hmm. were lights flashing, and mm-hmm. then we would find out about 20 minutes later that the staff was all outside right. because there were concerns about a fire. Yeah, it was, it's and, a fire alarm. And, 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 yeah. and we were not told, and the idea was then presented that we should stay here with the ship right. and be on air. I have been clear since then. I am not going down with the you ship. You have been very clear about that. Yeah, I'm not going down. No. Scott's not going down. John's not going down. If you want to stay and run the station while the building's on fire, Some of us ahead. have that dedication, Chad. Yeah, Other of us don't. No, what I'm do not. Is the building on fire? Uh, as far as I know, it's not because I still see staff milling around. Carter, who had abandoned ship last time, yeah. is right outside the door. Yeah, Adam Carter. So he's still around. Yeah, Adam so Carter. I think we're okay. Part of the show. Okay, let's just establish part of the show last time basically was across the street having a cocktail. So he showed his loyalty to himself. So I think we'll be back soon.